Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McInroy. Steve Walsh sitting with me. Hello. In 1887, in Honour Oak, William Henry Pratt was born. But the world doesn't know him as William Henry Pratt. The world knows him as Boris Karloff, who, over the course of only three films, managed to create an image of Frankenstein's monster that has lived on forever. Oh, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Happy Halloween. Can you say that? I don't know, it just seems spooky Halloween. I'm not a Halloween fan. Do you like it at all? Do you see any... I think um, it's an American holiday, isn't it? It's done well in America. It's not, though, is it? I mean... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. It's done properly in America, so you can dress up. People, everyone dresses up and stuff. And, uh, you know, candy. And, like, in America, you have neighbours that you can walk to their house and knock on the door. Whereas in, in war, if you don't have that, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So like, the, say like the Buffy episode where they all turn into their Halloween costumes. Yeah, you know that's the pinnacle for me. Yeah, but yeah, similarly, growing up uh, in Campbell, well, to be fair, it was like conflating the two things. My mum had big issues around Halloween and Guy Fawkes Night because her assertion for both of them was, "I don't want my kids out begging." Whether <laughs> it's going door to door begging for sweets <laughs> or standing on a corner begging for money from strangers because you've assembled something. So, uh, yeah, we never really went trick or treating. And my mum's case was always, the you know, with Halloween, it was always this is American. It's American invention, it's just commercialism, it's just crass, there's no need to get involved. So, never really had a tradition in my family of, of doing anything for Halloween, like carving pumpkins or any of these mm. other things. Recently, uh, since my parents have moved to Ireland, there's a museum near them in Ireland called the Museum of Country Life. And they've got this great display all about uh, the Halloween traditions in Ireland that date back like hundreds of years. So since then, my mum's sort of gone, All right, maybe there is a longer <laughs> tradition I've given it credit for. But she still doesn't agree with the principle of going around uh, asking for people for stuff. But that's the thing, yeah, it's quite easy to think of it. I, that, and that's why I've been brought up to think of it, and I still think of it in a way now. As a very sort of plastic American piece of commercialism. Yeah. But obviously uh, it's a Christian festival, isn't it? It's one of those things, All Hallows' Eve. It's apparently, the the idea is that souls are, are moving around. It's a time where the souls of the dead are, are, are mo- migrating. I don't know where. Right. Yeah, from where and to where. And it's, so it's a night where on the next day, on uh, All Souls' Day... The, the souls are settled, but on that night they're around. So, you, and all the traditions like we're sailing and trick or treating, I think, comes from that idea of the souls are disturbed. And if you don't scare the souls away or appease the souls, then they'll get you. And I think the idea is that kids going to people's houses are supposed to be like the souls floating around, harassing you. And if you don't appease them, mm-hmm. they egg your windows or something. Yeah, but yeah. luckily, as I said, you know, probably the same for you in Campbell. No one even knocks on your door. There's they? no tradition, is there? There's right. no, you know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if things are changing. Last Halloween or the one before, 
I went must have gone around my mate Dan's to watch Tottenham play. I was on the platform at East Croydon Station and there was like, you know, there were quite a lot of people getting on trains at 10 o'clock at night into central London dressed. Yeah. Like, it was like a kind of, you know, younger, younger people, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a sexy Bride of Frankenstein. Is there any other kind of Bride of Frankenstein? <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing. Over the last few years, it has become more of an event, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, it's, I, I'm going by my sister a little bit. Like my sister put a picture on Instagram today where she'd done like her face as like a skeleton and like this teeth going like halfway up her cheek and stuff. Really, really good. I mean, she's a she knows talented it's, makeup it's, artist. It's not Halloween today. Practice. practice. Right, okay. And uh, she's going to be in New York for Halloween. So. Oh, right. Brilliant. But yeah, she did the uh, Aladdin Sane um, lightning strike on my face, oh, right, which you yeah, can yeah. see at southrunhardcore.com if you click on the David Bowie episode. Um... Yeah, and she's like, she's been to like a Thanksgiving party in Peckham. Right. And uh, what other ones are there? Fourth of July. I don't think she's ever done anything for Fourth of July. But... Kwanzaa. She, uh, Best of Us. Yes, I don't really get Halloween. I don't really enjoy any of Halloween. Like apple bobbing just seems uh, yeah. horrible to me. Surely you're just like putting your mouth into. Things where other people's mouths are... I mean, I know swimming baths are the same. And there's always the, the chance that someone's going to dunk you as well. Just not fun, is it? And even like more modern Halloween traditions, like over... Well, say modern. Twitter's only been going a few years. So it's all, all of their uh, traditions are modern and recent. But the whole thing where people change their names and their Twitter pictures into like Halloween... I can only uh, think this is directed at Tomb J. Allen. Close friend, <laughs> close friend of both of us. <laughs> Well, the thing is, I get confused enough with who's who on Twitter. Yeah. Already, yeah. with people having this name and that name, and that changes and this changes and the picture changes. Jack Baker and Mike Edwards just blend into one to me. This is the problem, isn't it? You know, you're looking at a thing going, is that the. So the fact that now everyone's sort of undead versions of themselves just throws me completely. Plus, it's difficult to do like a Halloween film, Steve Walsh, isn't it? What would you do like spooky Steve Walsh? He's already a bit horrific, isn't he? That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> Just Wolfman. Two years ago when we started doing this show, you know, I had a cursory knowledge of uh, South London and South Londoners. Now, I'm constantly on the lookout for people from South London, people born here, spent time here. You've told me that any time you see a new poster go up on a wall for a musical act, you instantly check if they're from <laughs> South London, isn't it? Yeah, is this that kind of thing, yeah, and you kind of, someone, you think, oh, where's that person from? Are oh, they from you know, Essex or whatever, but you're constantly Googling people. And there are a few surprises left, really. You know, so over the time, I didn't know, before we started doing the show, I didn't know that Ginger Baker was from Elton. Yeah. And I didn't know that... Uh, Mick uh, McManus was from New Cross. Yeah, Frank Bruno from Wandsworth. Giant I, haystacks. You know, some people aren't wrestlers. <laughs> I didn't know, and I didn't particularly care. But I think this is probably the most shocking one, isn't it? It is. Bob Hope, Bob Hope's up there. Your Bob Hope is up there, actually, as a, uh, a great unlikely South get. Londoner. <laughs> but Boris Karloff, episode one hundred and seven, <laughs> the unlikely South Londoners. Well, Boris Karloff. I mean, um, because... it's, two, it's twofold, isn't it? Yeah. Partly the name, the name Boris Karloff yeah. doesn't sound like someone from You're like he's, he's from Yugoslavia, definitely. But also, you don't think of him being from anywhere, do you? Well, from the grave, from the gallows thing, <laughs> reanimated. This, the, but the other thing as well is, of course, because we're talking about films made in the 30s, 
unless you know you're reading the you know variety of the time, uh, I, 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 neither of us have a, a real affinity or love of horror films as a genre particularly. Neither of us are like you know get that in early on the show. We're not, we're, <laughs> we're, we're not horror fiends, though, are we? We're no. not. So we're not sort of like going to be. You know, I'm aware of. Boris Karloff as an actor, I'm aware of the fact that Universal made a series of films with different characters that have gone to So, you know, it's sort of general knowledge. But where these people come from and what they're about, I don't know, you know. Yeah, you don't get the uh, level of uh, celebrity detail you get now, do you? I mean, no, this I've is only it. read a couple of chapters of uh, Kenneth Vanger's Hollywood Babylon, for example. But yeah, Boris Karloff was born 36 Forest Hill Road. We can give away his address now because no one's going to go around there and harangue the car. It's now a, a fish and chip shop, isn't it? Oh, is it? Called like. I can't. What is it called, Steve? Like the. Uh, a scary cod or something. Is that what it's called? It's is not it? called that. Okay. It's, does, it, does it play up on the fact that. Uh, oh, no, it did. No, it definitely doesn't. But it's got really a blue flash on it? it. Yeah. And that is at the tip of. Not the tip. What's the opposite of a tip, Steve? Stub. It's at the stub of Peckham Rye. Okay. On that main road that goes up the side of the Rye on the East Dulwich side, yeah. And uh, but that's listed as on a oak. Now I don't. I mean, the best thing to do has probably been to knock on people's doors around there and uh, see what they've got on their addresses. But where do you think you live? Yeah, I thought I presume that was uh, East Dulwich personally, but it's listed as Camberwell in some places. But we sussed out that that's almost certainly the fact that it was the borough of Camberwell in those days. Was no one born in hospitals in those days? <laughs> but yeah, he didn't spend long in South London. I don't know exactly when he moved over the river, but he went to live in Enfield and grew up there and then eventually moved to Canada to act and changed his name to Boris Karloff and then moved to Hollywood, obviously. But yeah, doing the research, Steve, I saw there's a whole section on Wikipedia about where he got his name from and I did worry that you were going to insist on reading out all the erroneous <laughs> entries. Um, I, I didn't think it was conflicted. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was just like one standard reason, which is the fact that his family were all quite respectable civil servants, and he was worried that he was. Uh, well, you know, yeah, uh, ironically, that. wondering that he's bringing disgrace to the Pratt name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the trouble is on there. They've got like um, it's suggested the name Boris Karloff comes from this character in in this book. Blah oh, blah right. blah. With yeah, like yeah. two sentences on it. This yeah. book was written eight years after he changed his name. <laughs> And That's then it's also not. suggested that it was written... And the same thing. But this also came out five years after you changed his name. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to insist on those. But in turn, Steve, I've ended up uh, taking us in that direction. It's this, it's this sort of spooky time of year where, you know, the unexpected <laughs> Roles will <happen>. are reversed. <laughs> so the first of the three films that Karloff performs as the monster is Frankenstein, which is released in 1931. Directed by James Whale who, even now, even having done the research, and being aware of him as a Hollywood director from the 30s before, I still can't help but think of that terrible shock jock uh, TV guy from the 90s. With his, yeah, uh, you say that, Steve, but when I was about 14, I used to, like, maybe 15, something like that, I used to be up, like, I used to go to bed or whatever, 10. You know, my parents were quite strange about that, like, going off. And I used to listen to James Whale for two hours, like every <laughs> night. Just like it was, it was shocking, jocking. I mean, you had no idea about the iniquities of the EU until that point, did you? <laughs> and what a, a huge problem, uh, you know, mass immigration is. But now you're in. Was he, did he talk about that? 
Yeah, doesn't he? Isn't that all he talks about? Mm, I don't really remember that. It I was, was getting the feel a lot of kind of like you know, it was lewd jokes and stuff. Okay. It was you know, it was late night radio, so it wasn't. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really. As far as I remember, it wasn't really pushing like a right wing agenda. Oh, it was right. just I was imagining being of, like uh, a shouty. Uh, Daily he Mail was, and he would shut people off and stuff. You know, and just like, but it was quite. I, I found it really entertaining at the time. I had no idea I would, you know, go on to have a career in talk radio myself. <laughs> it's uh, shaped so much of your uh, worldview. I mean, the thing is, for all my uh, disparaging comments around him, you know, there's only one of us sitting in this room that's taking his beard as a model. <laughs> so. uh, but yeah, the much more accomplished James Whale, the uh, subject of Gods and Monsters, played by Ian McKellen, wasn't he? Yes. Have you seen the film? I've not seen the film. No, I almost watched it for the show and yeah. then decided not to. Because time constraints. But yeah, he... Um, no, go on, go on. Go back and say something about him, Steve. Well, the thing that struck me... Because I'd never, again, you know, not a horror film fan, you know, never seen any of these films before. The thing that struck me almost immediately as soon as Frankenstein started the film was how beautiful it looked. So well composed... The opening scene where the um, it's a funeral, a uh, graveyard, and like I say, I've I've not watched a, uh, a lot of films uh, from the period or by this director, but the, the, the sort of backdrop and the composition of the shot and uh, yeah, just little details in the set, and you know, it continues throughout the film. But it was like striking immediately. I was like, it was really odd. Like twenty seconds, I was like, this is good. This is like well made and properly. Done. I wasn't really expecting that. I think I was expecting something quite sort of schlocky and a bit silly. Yeah, I had the opposite reaction, really. It's the second time I've seen it, and I've been quite underwhelmed both times. Okay. And I came in with knowing that it was critically acclaimed. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, oh, it is? Yeah, it's seen as an important, uh, you know, film in the horror genre. Yeah. But, I mean, that sounds... like I know you. that does sound, you know, because it's such a rubbish genre <laughs> I mean, do you know what I mean it's kind of in, even in you can say in the history of filmmaking like it's people it's still highly rated but I just I got nothing I got very little out of it and I, I don't quite I mean I do I, it's, it's nicely lit and stuff and it is moody well, this is, that's the thing but I didn't find it particularly compelling visually no, I mean the thing you know is, in terms of in terms of the composition, I should say. But like production design and yeah, the production design I yeah. think is the best thing about it. Yeah, but I think it's undercut at all point at all points by just appalling acting. Yeah, I mean, and it's a very confused production, isn't it? I mean, you've got the story of Frankenstein, and you know the fact that it's set in this Eastern European village, but then the characters, and you have like burgomasters, you know, very sort of Germanic Central European ideas but then everyone's got an American or English accent a couple of people sort of try vaguely European accents but then that just makes them even more incongruous so there's no point really where you can buy into it as a, as a piece of drama because at all times you're being reminded that it's people pretending to be things yeah, because exactly, they're not all yeah. pretending to be the same thing mm. so, and they're pretending to be it really really badly yeah it's not you know um, brilliant performances. Although I, I don't know, I think I'd make an exception for Karloff. I think his performance. But we'll, yeah, you know, he does we'll something. Yeah, he does something. But I just think um, I, I, I wasn't expecting it to be um, so well constructed in terms of just like it looked good on the screen to me. It um, looks more sophisticated, and I mean it's a point I'll come back to when uh, talking about uh, Son of Frankenstein. But uh, just immediately, I was like, oh, this is going to be. 
more interesting to watch than I thought it was going to be. And as I say, but the difference was I had very low expectations and hopes going in. I'd forgotten a lot about it. Like, it was a few years ago that I watched it. Um, and I've seen Young Frankenstein before and since. And I'm a huge fan of it, as I presume you are, Steve. Yeah. One, yeah. Of, uh, one of his top two or three films in it. Um, Mel Brooks. Top two. Top two, definitely. It's brilliant. And uh, it basically is the plot of Frankenstein and probably half of Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Or two yeah. thirds, even. Yeah. And as a result of that, sort of having young Frankenstein in mind, which looks so similar, there's scenes that are just like done all like very, very closely, but hilarious. And it just it made Frankenstein feel like it cut off sort of halfway through the film. I tell you mean. I was quite pleased when I saw how short it was. Because I think and again, you know, uh looking at Son of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein is a, like an hour and 45 minutes long. It's far too long. It just really is elongated. So I, I found this quite sort of... And it's a pretty simple story, isn't it? You know, you're not going to do what they're doing in the, the novel. So you, you, all you want is the action. You want to get to the moment um, of the monster being created. So I didn't really have too much of a problem. I found it quite a relief. Yeah, I'm waiting for him to meet the blind man. And he meets the blind man in the second film. <laughs> There's no denying, though, how iconic it is, though, and how it's been repeatedly, not, I was going to say repeatedly homaged and parodied and ripped off. But it's not just that. It's established what Frankenstein's monster is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's established Frankenstein yeah. as, as a piece. I mean, I've read the original novel and the remove uh, that you have in the film. I mean, there's, there's so many odd little changes. I mean... In the novel, the character of the monster's creator is Victor Frankenstein, and his best friend is called Henry. In the film, the creator of the monster is called Henry Frankenstein, and his best friend is called Victor. And apparently, the idea was that audiences wouldn't find Victor Frankenstein a sympathetic name, so they gave him him. But all, all that did, again, was, for me, confuse where these characters are supposed to be. Because you've got, you know, this woman who's clearly English shouting for Henry at a castle. Uh, and this is in Eastern Europe. <laughs> She's looking for Henry. Arguably the... No, I think it's inarguable. But the iconic scene in Frankenstein is the moment of the monster's creation. And now we think of lightning and we think of a castle and we think of a tower and we think of this elaborate... Uh, laboratory and the system and the doctor at work in the novel it's essentially Frankenstein working in his lodgings and making a patchwork man but nothing like the monster that we see in the film the other thing that threw me in the film was the fact that his assistant's called Fritz and I was like Igor you know it's such a, a staple is it Igor in the book Obviously it's Igor in the I don't think he's even got an assistant in the book. I think um, he pretty much does it by himself. But again, the visual idea, and it, it, you know, this is something that's particularly uh, been magnified by young Frankenstein, yeah, is of Melbourne, yeah. yeah, is of the hunchback assistant, sort of like walk this way, <laughs> hopping around exactly, hopping around the castle, and um, and and Igor being the name of it. But yeah, it's Fritz, and he's uh, you know. 
you know, creeping around and he's a bit disturbing, but it's not quite, it was a bit sort of underwhelming in terms of uh, Dr. Frankenstein's assistance. One of the key things, uh, changes to the novel, as you say, and uh, things that are established for all future Frankenstein monsters is the flathead. Um, originally, Bela Lugosi, who played Dracula earlier that year, which really kicked off the Universal monster film boom, was going to play uh, the monster. But I f- mm, there's conflicting. There's talk that he turned it down because he didn't want to be billed with a question mark in the opening credits. But there is also talk that they didn't like the look of him in his makeup test. Apparently, he was laughed at. The yeah. Makeup test. Yeah. And in the makeup test, he's just got normal hair. Right. And then you end up. You go from Bela Lugosi with just like a you know crew cut to Boris Karloff with the flat head, which is just you know like you know you wouldn't you know Herman Munster, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. Know. This is it. Like every version of Frankenstein's monster since then is based on this idea from 1931, and it is things like uh, it's top to toe, the boots, the idea of these big Platforms, heavy yeah, yeah industrial uh, boots, the jacket. You know, the fact that he wears essentially like a a blazer, you Mm. know, which is too short in the arms. You know, it's all these little things. And, you know, um, as much as anything else, the, you know, what we call the bolts on the neck, which were always apparently designed to be seen as electrodes. And that's where uh, the the power goes in. Although there's only one scene in any of the three films where that actually happens. And that's in the third Using an actual Tesla coil. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Uh, James Whale gets a lot of credit for the look of the film. You know, there's arguments that, you know, people claim to have found sketches that he made showing the monster with a flat head. So there's arguments, well, arguments being proponents from his camp and that of Jack Pierce, the makeup artist who has been given. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fair to say it's probably the pair of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Like when we're also talking about, uh, you know, it'll come up in the next film, Bride of Frankenstein. But again, it's the pair of them, isn't it? Yeah. That basically create, well, also, we you know, know the, the, look, the look is one thing, but Pierce's actual methods were important as well. He had a very particular way of working with cotton and this bonding thing, which is apparently a nightmarish sort mm. of scenario. And, like, pretty much everyone that ever worked with him hated him because yeah. he was uh, quite arrogant and... Yeah, delusions. Just... I say delusions of grandeur. It's not really delusions, is it? When yeah, you've created an iconic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but similarly, Im- important um, is... Uh, the work of Kenneth Strickfaden, who designs the electrical effects for the film, and again, just defines what we think of when we think of Frankenstein. We think of electricity pulsing around. And again, in the novel, this isn't a thing. There's an element of electricity being used, but these really ornate objects. And as you say, you know, sourced a Tesla coil made by Nicholas Tesla himself to use in the production. I mean... Frankenstein aficionados call the electrical effects Strickfardens. He's become, you know, uh, a noun in their world. It describes their world. <laughs> it's not our world. We, we, you know, <laughs> we can we can peer through the window like a monster, uh, a blind man, but we do not. You know, we don't live there. But um, yeah, no, and it is it is a combination of these things. I think, isn't it? You know, so many iconic moments and images just created in this one film. Another nice little touch I enjoyed with the film, and again, it wasn't something I expected. Uh, before the film itself starts, you get a, a warning from a man in evening dress mm. who emerges from behind a curtain. And again, I didn't find the film scary at any point. 
I don't think, you know, no, I think with not. our modern sensibilities, yeah. it's very difficult for us to look at a film from the 1930s and go, that was terrifying. It's not scary. Have you ever Fascinating. Seen, have you ever seen the film Targets? It's no. a Peter Bogdanovich's, Peter Bogdanovich's first film. Right. And it stars Boris Karloff as an okay. agent actor. Yeah. And he talks about, um, you know, these films, they're not scary anymore. It's high camp. Yeah. And, it's, you know, he nails it really. So originally, Frankenstein as a film ends with the monster and his creator dying in the fire at the mill that the film ends with. Before the film's released, they realise that it's probably going to be a bit of a hit. As you say, uh, Dracula has established an a audience for these new horror films. So they redo the ending so that Dr. Frankenstein survives and the monster's fate is a bit more mysterious. So you have a scene at the end of the film where the monster's apparently uh, burnt to death in the mill. He's thrown Frankenstein out of the mill. In the original ending, he falls to the ground and dies. In this one, he hits the, the veins of the mill and that softens his fall enough for him to land. I don't know, sorry. But um, he's taken back to the castle and his father's relieved that he survived the ordeal and he can now marry and is going to be happily ever after. It won't. The monster's going to come back. There's no doubt about that. Um, but that's quite interesting considering what happens in the second film, The Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> So it's 1935, Universal make a sequel to Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. James Well is back to direct. Jack Pierce is back to do makeup. Kenneth Strickfarden is into electrical effects. The gang's all here. We've got Boris Karloff as the monster. Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein. So they've, they've managed to retain so many of the elements that made the first film work. Things like retaining Jack Pierce is important in terms of maintaining the the visual consistency of the monster over the two films. Even if someone came in and tried to ape his effects, they're not going to get it quite right, you'd imagine. But he also has such knife of detail that when the monster reappears in the second film, he adds like burns and scars from his injuries in the mill and also uh, has them heal over the course of the film, which I thought, well, it's not something like I noticed, but it's a nice touch, isn't it? Boris Karloff credited as merely Karloff in the uh, opening sequence. One up from the question mark he got in the first film. Yeah. yeah. Two up, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, it starts with um, Byron it's a, it's and Shelley and uh, Mary Shelley. I didn't realise that Shelley and Shelley were a couple. Yeah, it's a clue in the surname. It is, yeah, but not everyone would say surname's married, Steve, are they? What? It's um, it's a, a brilliant sequence for a number of reasons. My favourite thing about it was actually it's, it's, it's joint top the performance of the man playing. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's his name? Byron. Byron. Yeah. Um, but also the incredible economy of the writing in establishing mm. what the scenario is that you're watching. So basically you've got these three people sat in a drawing room, two blokes and a woman, all wearing a quite dated dress. And you're like, I wonder what this could be. You don't have to wait long. 
because nice. he stands up and goes, here I stand. <laughs> Lord Byron, England's greatest sinner. And you're like, oh, so that's Lord Byron. I wonder who the other two are. Don't worry about it, he's got yeah, it covered. Yeah, and you sit there, my dear yeah. friend Percy Shelley, Hello. England's greatest poet. <laughs> it's like, oh, so that, so that must be... Don't worry about it. Even if you've already guessed at this point, this is probably because it's a Frankenstein film we've got a Shelley. That's probably Mary Shelley. And there's your dear wife, Mary Shelley. And you're like, brilliant. In like 12 seconds, here's exactly what happens. There's a, a, a lovely bit as well where he describes... Is it, what does he describe it as? Her... Um, like a plain brow or unimpressive brow. Who would imagine that such work could come huh. from such a, a a dull brow? And you're like, this is really. He's supposed to be a poet. He's, uh, yeah. It's um, it's a tremendous uh, bit of yeah, really bad. <laughs> but similar, I, I enjoyed it in the same way. Yeah, it's it, certainly in keeping. Yeah, definitely. Well, also, um, you know, James Whale didn't want to make a sequel. He wasn't. He felt he'd done what he wanted to with Frankenstein in the first film, uh, but they were quite insistent. When he agreed to do it, his basic apparently he was uh, quoted as saying that what he wanted to make more than anything was a hoot. Which so it's almost like at this point he's he's seen it fifty years in the future and he's like this isn't going to stand as a, as a great work of drama, but we can have some fun here. So you know, let's establish almost this. the monsters. Isn't it? It's, it's it does. There are moments in the film. You know, after the scene uh, opens, and again, it's quite effective as uh, an opening because you know Byron very quickly establishes who everyone's in the room, um, and then they cajole Mary Shelley into talking about her work, and <laughs> this is a great bit where uh, she goes, "Well, of course, that isn't how." I intended the story to end. It was supposed to be a moral tale. And what was actually going to happen was, and they sort of like, and, and they also do a useful recap of the first film, yeah. which is interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because in the recap, you see um, the father of the little girl who dies carrying her through the town. And then when the film starts by the mill, um, the same character is standing there but played by a completely different actor. I think wearing different clothes. So it's like, who's your continuity person? Because, you know... The, that out. And, and they also attempt to build up some drama early on by when the scene starts and Mary Shelley's like, well, this is what was going to happen next. They And it cuts to the mill. Um, and all the, the people in the village are like gathered round Henry Frankenstein's prone body. And they're like, well, he's dead. Can't believe Henry Frankenstein's heads, and you're watching it going, Nah, he's alive because <laughs> the last film ended with uh, him being revived at the castle, and his dad going, uh, He's gonna be all right, he's you know, he can get married. But they spend like five to ten minutes bringing the body back to the castle, going, Well, he's dead, and then he goes back to the castle, and he's alive, and you're like, Nah, this doesn't work because he's definitely alive. We also get to meet Minnie at the mill, who's another piece of evidence for the fact that James Well is not taking this film seriously at all. She's the... She, at first, she seemed to be some sort of Romany... Yeah, yeah the, just this very uh, dramatic, shouty woman who's basically getting in the way of anyone trying to do anything constructive around the mill by just shouting at people and insisting various things. Um, we soon find out she's the maid at the castle, so we see a lot of her in the film, possibly too much. Because she undercuts any sort of drama, doesn't she? Just with her voice. And she does like little mugs to camera. 
which yeah, yeah it's very yeah uh, see Bride of Frankenstein is almost as uh, well it is it's held in the same regard as Frankenstein it's yeah. like you know a sequel as good as it's uh, yeah better than its predecessor but similarly not great in my opinion and the, the thing is when the drama when the story is actually sp- supposed to begin afresh is the arrival of Dr. Septimus Pretorius. And straight away, the, the name sort of go, you sort of go, well, who's this guy now? <laughs> we've got so, all these people that are Henry's in Eastern Europe, and now we've got Septimus Pretorius. Um, and he's supposed to bring new impetus to the story with the idea that he he's uh, Frankenstein's mentor and he wants to motivate him to revisit his work. And Frankenstein's recovering, he's married, and he doesn't want to get involved. But to convince him to get involved, Pretoria shows him what he's been working on in terms of creating life. And what he's created in terms of life... I mean, I don't know if you want to describe... Yeah, jars with tiny people in. They're, they're called, Henry VIII. They're, they're, called, like. they're called homunculi. Uh, mm. on, uh, uh, it's uh, bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't expecting that at all. No. I it was really bad. Yeah. And uh, When yeah, I read doing homunculi, like, I was like, oh, they're going to be like deformed little... Yeah. This is going to be actual horror. But then... And like it's this he's been breeding these little. Uh, he's breeding essentially action, action figure sized people. Sort of thing, yeah, who wear uh, clothes uh, that relate only to who they are or what they do. So it's like a ballerina. So she's just wearing a tutu. Who's made tiny clothes? That's what I'm yeah. Doing. Well, also I was like, what is what's your toilet? You know, situation in a glass jar wearing a tutu. Free for all, I think. <laughs> and it, but it's just really bizarre. And like the king is in love with the queen. And he, he escapes out of the jar and runs around. I mean, the first thing that struck me was these special effects are really good for 1935. They are like yeah. Yeah. Oh. I couldn't work out how they done it all. Apparently, ro- <laughs> rotoscoping is yeah. one of the things. That, yeah. I don't know what this is. I, I this, can't work out how they done it. No, I was like, <laughs> this, but I was like, this looks great. This looks great, but for a completely different film. Mm. This doesn't work for no, a it horror film. Take you out, doesn't it? Again, though, you get another brilliant quote when Frankenstein agrees to work with Pretorius and Pretorius is it a toast or just a declaration where he sort of decrees uh, a new world of gods and monsters oh hence the title for the film hence it? the title for that film yeah, yeah. and also um, there's a Peter Biskin book isn't there yes there is yeah, Hollywood yeah generally for that title well, we should probably establish that the monster survived oh yeah 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 the first film. He's just, he's basically under the mill um, in a pool of water. So he escapes. Goes and, for a wonder, basically. Yeah, traipses through the just countryside. And then he's drowning people again. <laughs> clumsy. If you have to choose a word to describe Frankenstein's monster, you go, he is clumsy. Makes friends with a blind person. You know, just because you're blind doesn't mean the fact that this guy's like growling at you instead of <laughs> making noises. <laughs> you're a quiet one. No, he's not. He's yeah, a monster. Boozes him up. <laughs> I think it kind of goes off like Karloff is doing fine until that point. As much as I'm not enjoying it, you know, as much as I don't, I'm not keen on it. He's doing all right, but when he starts getting drunk and talking, the performance of Karloff as the monster is tremendous. Good. Yeah, well, he didn't want to talk. He thought it was ridiculous. Yeah, well, it would have been better without him talking. I think. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it is an inadvertent homage to the novel, which has, uh, you know. One of it has a, a moment that's rightly picked out quite regularly as one of the the biggest sort of goofs in uh, literature, where the monster learns to read and talk 
by watching a child have lessons. You don't learn to read by watching someone read, do you? It's not like, you know, driving a car. You can't copy the actions and go, uh, uh, and now I can read. And in, in the book, uh, the monster, just by overhearing people and like hanging around near people, uh, becomes very um, verbose and has a wonderful vocabulary. So he actually goes... Um, is the, how highly regarded is the book? Yeah, very highly regarded. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, uh, bits like that that undo it. But I, I think at the time... For a number of reasons, um, it made a splash. The fact that you had a woman writing an, uh, a horror novel was, yeah. was was hugely shocking for the time. The fact that you had um, a book that dealt with you know themes like you know grave robbing yeah. and you know yeah, the, the subtitle of life yeah the subtitle it. of of the novel is the a modern, modern Prometheus. yeah so it is you know a, a, that a, ridley scott film a more modern <laughs> and of course um you know while we're talking on saffron hardcore about frankenstein um it would be remiss not to mention that i think when she was like 17 or 18 um Mary Shelley, who was Mary Wollstonecraft at the time, insisted that her family move to Woolworth because uh, she wanted to be near her friend who lived really? in London. Right. Yeah. When we went to that pub quiz at Elephant, yeah. and Hassan was no use at all. But like, the one bit was they said, which, <laughs> no boxing w- which Woolworth feminist said yeah. this? Yeah. And it was a quote, Steve. And it was like, Mary Wollstonecraft. I was like, all right. <laughs> she's obviously not written any horror novels next question please <laughs> right oh right so I mean don't live there for a couple of years it's quite funny she insisted they moved to Warworth and then she moved out <laughs> so they, they moved to Wales shortly afterwards <laughs> and yeah so the monster wanders round the countryside learns to speak learns to smoke almost uh, mm. instantly um, and eventually runs into Pretorius and obviously, through his vocabulary of four words, one of which is good, uh, understands entirely when Pretorius explains that they're going to make uh, a mate for him. And he's like, oh, this would be great. He doesn't say that. But uh, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> it's like Andrew Dice Clay, isn't it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> the thing that struck me about the second film that was remarkable for me the Bride of Frankenstein is another iconic horror character. Yeah. It's a look that isn't as well known as the Frankenstein. No, but only but because Frankenstein is like, you know, the number one of horror course. choice. In yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the white streaks in the hair. I think you can make a case, though, that the Bride of Frankenstein possibly has the greatest visual impact of maybe any film character that only ever appeared for five minutes on screen. She literally turns up in the last five minutes of the yeah, film. Yeah. Is on screen for two minutes. Yeah, I kept forgetting that I was that she. That I was like, oh wait, there's a bride coming at some yeah. stage. Yeah, really odd. Yeah, it's only literally five minutes. Literally five minutes. Because I, I was watching the film, sort of going, "This is almost finished." Am I, am I watching the correct? Are they talking about <laughs> making a bride of Frankenstein? Do they actually? They do. Um, when she's constructed and being revived. She's wrapped in bandages. So it looks more like the mummy. Um, another Boris Karloff movie. There you go. 
But what's also funny is she's wrapped head to toe in bandages. So you see her wrapped head to toe in bandages, and then she's revived and starts moving, and then it cuts to her unwrapped from the bandages, but they don't only wrap her from the bandages, putting in a very nice gown. Yeah. But also her hair. There's some reveal in it. You're sort of like it all it made me think of the nineteen seventies Spider Man TV show. Let me finish. In that, I always just watch a kid going, How is Spider Man getting all that hair? Which is on Peter Parker's head because it's <laughs> the 70s. And it should just look like a big yeah. sort of lumpy. Well, I'm sure they had panels. I guess, yeah, this is it. You just like tuck it all in there, isn't it? But yeah, she's got. Um, I mean, fair play to, uh, you know, Pretorius and Frankenstein. Mixed records in terms of creating life that isn't murdery. But brilliant hairdressers, aren't they? Yeah, it's really That nice. is quite the coiffuring they, they managed yeah. to do. Uh, the idea is that she's been electrocuted, yeah. Oh, is that what it is? I guess so. That's why yes. it's so... And that's why, why it's got the so white flat? streaks in it. Right. Mm. Yeah. Probably my favourite um, Bride of Frankenstein homage, Steve, would be Bride of Blackenstein when um, Nicki Minaj was on Saturday Night Live. And uh, she's got the wig on, obviously. And she's worn the Bride of Frankenstein wig other times, you know, just... Especially <laughs> that. Once you bought it, I mean... out and about. Um, yeah, and it's just the joke... They're just like, oh, that fatty flesh on the bottom will, uh, you know, that'll that'll wear off. Don't worry. He's like, that better that better be staying. You know, <laughs> cut to a close up of uh, Nicki Minaj's backside. Put a link on the free free space. <laughs> it's no doubt linked to the fact that she only appears for five minutes in any film, but the Bride of Frankenstein is the only universal monster. That never commits murder. Right, that's interesting. That's a bit trivia, isn't it? But I mean, as I say, she's barely around. Do you know what she's not, Steve? She's not the only universal monster from South London. Oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is remarkable. You know, discovering that Boris Karloff was from South London, from sort of, you know, Honor Oak, Forest Hill, wherever you want to call it, was incredible. But, you know, the discovery we made. Yeah, Elsa Lanchester. Who is from Lewisham. Just up the road. I mean, it's yeah. really odd, isn't it? Yeah, it that is. Yeah. two people, one from Lewisham... Why did they even ...and one from Forest Hill... Yeah, this is the thing. I suppose he moved when he was a kid. He's not going to sort of go... Uh, like you go through, you, when you go through you Forest Hill on the bus, right? You yeah. enter in the borough of Lewisham. Yeah. And there's posters up that say, Be More. Like, you know, that's like a Lewisham slogan. Right. I, don't know if, I don't know if they've ever realised that Baltimore is like, you know, one of the most dangerous <laughs> cities in America. And they're, they're short on this B-more as well. But yeah, B-more. But you can't quite be like some of our residents, you know, iconic yeah. icons. <laughs> she had quite an interesting life, Elsa Lanchester. I didn't realise until I was on the bus on the way that she was married to Charles Lawton. Well, that's how she gets to Hollywood. That's what's interesting. Like, she meets Charles Lawton while they're both appearing in theatre in London. Uh, they marry, move over to Hollywood. He is the hit in Hollywood. Yeah, he's one of the all-time greats. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's marvellous. But while she's there, and he works with James Well. Obviously, James Well gets no Elsa Lanchester through that. Casts her as the Bride of Frankenstein. Mm. They're both in Witness for the Prosecution, which is really good. But, um, yeah, she said in her autobiography, in, uh, she died in 1986, and I think two years before, for her autobiography, and she said uh, uh, Charles Lawton was definitely gay, and that's why they never had kids. 
I think she means that's why they never had sex, Steve, not kids. <laughs> Maureen O'Hara disputes this, but they had mm, uh, quite I, the rivalry, didn't they? Yeah, I feel like Elsa Lanchester probably knows. But she had an <laughs> interesting life. Like, her parents met at a Social Democrat Party meeting, and uh, they were anti-marriage. Yeah. Right? So her parents never got married. No. She had the name Elsa Sullivan Lanchester. Sullivan is her dad's surname. And her mum's family tried to have a commit had her committed because she'd because she was so anti-marriage like you know at the time I suppose you could just go like she's mental she don't want to get married yeah and as a result of it um, the Lanchester kidnapping because like she got kidnapped by her brothers made international news and it led to reform in the asylum laws you knew that yeah they had, they had to make it a law that you're not allowed to kidnap your family and put them into asylum on your word remarkable so when she was a kid, you know, her parents were basically like proto-hippies. Like they moved six times when she was a kid so they could avoid getting vaccinated. <laughs> and uh, they wanted to homeschool her. I think there was some concern about the way girls were educated, which probably was legit. And um, eventually they sent her to, to like a, you know, a school in Lewisham, presumably. And... Like they got, they worked out this deal where she, because they're atheists, you know. And again, like in the early part of the century, not com, not no, particularly no. comfortable. Vo- vocal yeah, atheists. Yeah. They got it arranged so she didn't have to go to morning prayers. Like, <laughs> like she'd just like stand outside when they did prayers. No vegetarians, and like you know, she wanted to eat meat, so she'd sit there eating uh, oxo cubes a quarter at a time. <laughs> Heard this on a podcast, Steve. I should confess about Elsa Lanchester's early life, which I stumbled across and didn't have a chance to listen to in in uh, in its entirety. But Steve will put a link on... Uh, well, I will, I suppose. <laughs> on the uh, Twitter, at SLHC, Instagram, at SLHC, Facebook.com, SouthlandHardcore. And all content on SouthlandHardcore.com as well. It's a five-minute performance she puts in the film, but um, it's pretty compelling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's great. Like you say, like the dress, the hairdo, like just the reveal is great. It's really like the highlight of uh, of a film before. But the performance... well, you know what? There are some good bits in the film. Yeah, you know, the, maybe it meets the blind guys good, but uh, it really does like cap off the film perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Well, also the uh, sort of heartbreaking moment where the monster and the bride are introduced to each other, and she just screams. But then, yeah, it's a great scream, though, isn't it? Screams, but also um, hisses. Yeah, she was described it as um, oh, something related to a swan. Can't yeah, she based it on the swan she's seen in Regent, Regent's Park. Yeah, so the monster decides. It's really odd. It's like Frankenstein's wife turns up and pleads with him to come away, and the monster sort of goes, "Yep, you go. You two go. You'll live, and we, you know, we already dead." So, uh, and he pulls a lever that makes the tower self-destruct. I'm not too sure about the... Yeah, that I think it's like strange. overloading the electrical yeah. thing. But basically, he dooms um, himself, Pretorius, and the bride to die in the tower. Right, that's the last I've seen of them. I've, that was enough for me. You watched Son of Frankenstein. I did watch Son of Frankenstein. Did you watch Frankenstein 1970, which was made in 1958? I didn't. Uh, where uh, Karloff plays the Doctor. Oh, right, no. Did you? I saw a trailer. Apparently, <laughs> apparently it's not very good. It doesn't But sound... it's like, 
everybody's confused. They're like, why is it called Frankenstein 1970? And it's made in 1958. And basically, it would have been the 1970 is the 200th anniversary of the novel. Right. I mean, there's no other reason. Other oh, it's than not that. sort of set in 90, It's not. Imagine apparently the future. Not. Apparently, it's just like it's only 12 years ahead. So yeah. I don't think man's landed on the moon and like <laughs> the Beatles are breaking up or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Son and Frankenstein, 1939, is important because you've got Karloff as the monster. That's the key to it being seen as part of this trilogy. Because apart from that, a lot of the other names are unfamiliar. We've still got Jack Pierce doing makeup. That's a deal breaker. No one else is doing flatheads like that guy. James Wilde has no interest whatsoever in doing another film. So they get... He's not dead. That would put a real cap on no, him. Um, so the studio gets Roland V. Lee in to direct. Even Strickfarden's gone. Which does become obvious in the revival scene. We have John P. Fulton instead. Immediately, the film doesn't look as lush as the previous two. Which really surprised me, just because... It's later, so you'd imagine, if anything, effects have got more mm. sophisticated. It's the third part of a... Down there, isn't it? Why? It's the third part of a popular franchise. I mean, it was... Have you seen Jaws 3, Steve? No, this is true. But also, what, one of the reasons Carlos didn't want to do any more Frankenstein films after this was the universe were, were moving them from A films to B films. They were literally going to be B movies from this point onwards. I think it was a sort of downturn in the fortunes mm. of horror films generally. But we've still got Carlos. I mean... Henry Frankenstein is dead, but it is the son of Frankenstein that we meet, which is Wolf von Frankenstein, played by Basil Rathbone. Right. Who, Sherlock Holmes. Wait, the, it, it's another odd one where he's definitely English. His wife's got a light American accent, but he's definitely American. Their kid is like something... Just he's just got the strongest American accent. Gee, oh, mom, that kind of thing. That, even more than that, <laughs> it's so remarkable how strong his accent. Hey, he's just like just elongated. <laughs> everything's just massively elongated. It's almost like they've it's the cuckoo in the nest. It's really um, odd. Yeah, as I say, the look at the film from the first sort of scene. Um, you know, we, we we find the Frankenstein's heading back. To the village of Frankenstein. It's called Frankenstein now. In the first two films, it's made clear that the village is called Goldstadt. But by the third film, apparently, despite the, you know, to put it mildly, checkered history that the family has, <laughs> they've named the town after them. So they go to the town of Frankenstein, they um, arrive by train. It's the, the, the shot of the train is so clearly a model, it's scary. And yeah. say, I'm not. You know what? There's one in a Hitchcock film, though. What is it? The uh, Lady Vanishes. Right. There's a bit where you, they pull her on this train and you're like, come on, yeah. Hitchcock. Although Hitchcock really was odd, well, well happy to have ropey effects when he, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, the castle looks rubbish. The town looks. It all just. It all just and the interior is really odd. Like, you're so used to the sort of dark gothic interiors from the first two films. And it's got. Uh, Wow, this really odd sort of modernist look to it. It looks like a, a sort of theatre set much more than a film set. It's really bizarre. Just this staircase and landing. 
that dominates basically for characters to stand at the top of the staircase and shout down to it. It's just really, as a really sort of theatrical device, it feels like. It's a very long film and it takes a long time for the monster to reappear. And it's this really interesting dynamic where Wolf von Frankenstein comes back to the village and the villagers are really furious. The last thing they want is a Frankenstein in this place. So they're pelting uh, the carriage, carrying his stuff with mud. But when he gets back to town, the mayor's like, well, his dad did ask me to give him these papers. And I, I'm a man of my word, so I'll give him these papers. And you're like, they're probably the papers about how to make a monster. Don't give him those. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is put temptations on. And he reads the papers, and he's like, oh, dad, really, what's on saying here with this whole reviving the dead? He, he yeah. was really good at it. You know, maybe... You know, he was a genius after all. And he's always raised, he's always reiterated that his mother told him his father was a genius and he'd done great things. Everyone's like, no, this monster murdered loads of people. Um, the local police captain turns up, he's got a false arm. There's a slightly sort of strange love feel to it. Again, it's not supposed to be a joke, but he's, he's constantly moving his false arm into place uh, to do <laughs> things like clean his monocle. And you just sort of go, this is very... But it's explained... Um, uh, and again, it's quite clunkily done uh, in terms of foreshadowing where this guy turns out with a false arm in a Frankenstein film and uh, there's a great bit where Basil Rathbone as Wolfram Frankenstein the son confronts his captain and goes you and your talk of monsters did you even see the thing and you're like yeah the guy with one arm definitely saw the monster and he tells a story about the monster tearing his uh, arm out at the root which is nice but you're like of course he did at the root Um, yeah it takes half the film um, for him to discover that the monster is about he's dead apparently but his body survived the explosion. Pretorius has gone, the bride's gone, but the, bo- the monster's body, he's wearing a furry vest now, that's never explained, um, is just lying in the laboratory, being guarded by Igor. Oh. Igor makes it. It's Bela Lugosi playing Igor, which is nice. And the combination of finding the monster's body and discovering his father's papers and seeing the reaction of the townspeople to his father's legacy gives Wolf on Frankenstein her dear. What if he can revive the monster, but make it good? This will be fine. Could never have guessed this. Yeah. Uh, so they revive the monster. Igor, who wants to take revenge on people in the town because they tried to hang him. And that's why he's got a hunchback, because he had a broken um, neck from the hanging. Um, really? Why yeah. did they try and hang him? Uh, grave robbing. Uh, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. Um, but when the monster's revived... It bonds with Igor and does whatever Igor wants, so Igor sends him back to kill all the jurors from his case. <laughs> the police captain, he's only got one arm, but he's Come not an idiot, so he traces it all yeah. back. There's also an odd moment where Basil Rathbone, although he's got an Igor to help him, also uh, has Benson, his butler, assisting in not the laboratory. Called Benson, yeah, yeah. Benson, he's wearing like a butler's garb in the, um, in the lab. The revival scene is so low key. Like, the little flickers of electricity, but it's nothing particularly exciting. or it's, it's a very dull film, visually, and just a bit odd and far too long, and yeah. So don't watch it. Don't, I mean, you know, we're back to uh, classic Karloff monster, and he doesn't talk, and he's just sort of rambling around, and you know. Um, there's another nice bit of foreshadowing about halfway through the film where someone mentions a sulphur pit under the castle. 
not mentioned in the previous two films, but there is. <laughs> it, but it's mentioned so sort of casually, and so it's uh, the captain's like, "Oh, this, have you discovered the sulfur pit?" And his wife's like, "The sulfur pit." And Wolf on Frank is like, "Yes, it was seen as uh, having healing properties. It was very much like the spas." And you're like, "Well, it's one use for a sulfur pit, I guess." <laughs> but um, almost inevitably, the film ends with Basil Rathbone swinging on a rope to kick the monster into the sulfur pit, and uh, apparently. That's the end of him. Mm. Yeah, there's more in there. It just keeps going and going in these Frankenstein films. But Carlos doesn't get involved. No, doesn't no. wear the makeup until 1966. At a celebrity baseball game. For uh, a TV series. Where him and Lugosi and Cheney all turned up as themselves. and as the, I haven't seen the actual... It's a show called Route 66. Oh, I saw an episode of it at the cinema, actually. Oh, right. I've never heard of yeah, it until no, this. I went, no, no, no. But it was um, Peck and Paul on screen and they showed High Noon and an episode of Route 66 that he directed. Yeah, apparently it did have good people involved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was quite a kind of well put together action kind of... But like Peck and Paul's directing episodes... You yeah, know, but this is sort of before the Wild Bunch. No, no, but, it, but even so, you've got like Karloff turning up as the... Uh, Frank yeah, but this is for just... The first no, no, time this is in... like Peck and Paul was... Just it was he did it before he did any films, so thanks for listening, watching, listen specifically. But if you've been motivated by what we've talked about to watch any of these films, Young Frankenstein, right? <laughs> um, by all means, go to southlandhardcore.com. There's an Amazon banner at the top of the page. Click on that. Anything you buy from Amazon, same price for you. Little bit of money for us. Amazon get gouged. Everyone's a winner. And if you're going to gouge someone at any time of year, Halloween or not. I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein.